for this outline, we're finishing it up. Um, we are in the, um, the monologue. We did Job's monologue. We did Elihu's monologue. We only have one left. Who's that? I'm God. Yes, we have God's monologues left. And then we'll have the uh, what's called the epilogue, which just gives us a little history of um, what happened to Job after all this was over. Um, just I don't think I need to spend a lot of time on this, but by way of review, <clears throat> you remember the question in the book started, why does Job obey God? And there was a difference of opinion between God and uh, Satan. And God won. <laughs> and indeed, throughout the book, Job is proving God to be right. And good, um, because the debates with the three friends were still a challenge to his faith. But he did not deny God that whole time. And then we talked about the question of why is Job suffering? And the friends had one opinion. Uh, Job had a different opinion. And then Elihu had yet another opinion. The friends' opinion is God punishes the wicked by making him suffer. If you're suffering, you're wicked. Um, Elihu offered a little difference on that, and what was his approach? Yeah, you you may be headed in the wrong direction. God's trying to get you back, or rescue you before it's too late. So that in Elihu's view, um, the suffering was um, uh, it was a kindness rather than a, a judgment. Although it could turn into a judgment if you don't repent. Um, so, now I want to look at the speeches of God. And, and there are two speeches of God. Chapters 38 and 39 is the first one. 40 and 41 is the second one. And so we look at God's first speech. Do you? And basically he's asking Job, do you understand creation? Um, and it certainly sounds like God's being hard on Job, which He is, although I mentioned down here, in fact, God's words are much less harsh than the words of Job's friends. <laughs> um, but in, in chapter 38, God looks at, God talks to, to um, Job about different things he had made. I want to know, Job, do you understand this? Do you understand that? And what's the message that he's trying to get across to Job when all Job can say is, uh, no, I don't understand this. What's the message? Yeah, if you don't understand the simple things, how are you going to understand the, the really hard things? I mean, which, which is simpler? The physical creation or the spiritual creation? The, yeah, the, the, the physical is clearly the simpler one, and the spiritual is much more complicated. If we, if we get lost when we try to understand the physical one, how are we going to handle the spiritual one? And 
You remember, Job had been working in the realm of the spiritual. God has been unjust to Job. Job said that many times. God had denied him justice. He wanted to have a court trial. Just him and God. Which is what God is offering him now. <laughs> and, and so God just tries to point out, you know, do you, do you understand these other things? And he, he, in chapter 38, he asks him three questions. Uh, verse 4, where were you? <laughs> where was he when God did these? And what's the answer? He wasn't born yet. He wasn't created yet. <laughs> um, can you bind? Um, in verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? I mean, he's talking about the stars. Well, you know, what can any of us do with the stars? <laughs> God, God can do anything He wants with them, but, you know, all we can do is look at them. <laughs> or, do you know the ordinance of, ordinances of heaven? Or do you fix their rule over the earth? And all these questions are about the physical creation. And all Job can say is, uh, no. And of course, all he does say is nothing. He, he just stays quiet this whole time. Because uh, in fact, the questions are, are what we call rhetorical questions. You don't have to answer. The answer is obvious uh, as soon as you answer. But now here is the key here. Point three on, on my chart. Job had sinned. He had... God is being hard on him because he loves Job. Job has questioned God's justice and God needs to correct Job. When we question God's justice or His goodness, we show a lack of trust and our sinning. You remember when in the wilderness when the Israelites were grumbling about they didn't have good food, they didn't have this or that. God was not happy about this. Um, now, and now we look at Job and we say, but Job had reason to be grumbling. I mean, Job was suffering more than any person we've ever known. How many times in these four chapters did God mention Job's suffering? What? Zero, yeah. He never mentioned it once. God knows Job is suffering. But what God is saying by that is that that's not an excuse. Now, we think it is an excuse. I mean, you know, when things are going well, we, we, we all do fine. We don't sin. And then, you know, we got a headache and, and somebody crosses us and so, you know, we lash out. Well, you know, I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't had a headache. Well, Joe had a lot more than a headache. Not only did he have all this suffering, but he was really being pushed to the limit by these three friends who were accusing him of all these terrible things. And so, we look at that and we say, well, you know, God, give him a break. We sin because we're sinful. And that's the point here. We don't sin because, you know, well, I wouldn't have that if, you know, when we start blaming other people, we, un- we don't understand ourselves. And, and to Job's credit, he never tried, he, he did not try to pass the buck at all. And you notice that too. His confessions are just straight, no, no, no excuses. Job's sin was, in fact, the sin of pride. Now, when, when you read it, it doesn't sound like pride, but when, 
when you think that you're in a position to judge God, that is pride. And, and of course, pride is the root sin of all humanity. It's, it's, uh, and the only way we can have pride is to ignore God's greatness. And so God is dealing with pride by, in Job by showing him his greatness. Um, chapter 39 continues the same idea, although God... Um, God just asks them more questions about things in the, in the creation. He talks about the, the mountain goats, the wild donkey, the ostrich, the horse, um, the hawk, and just amazing, amazing things. And really, you can you can look in almost any direction in, in creation and see things that you would say, "Wow, isn't God great?" God just picks some things that that I'm sure He would have noticed and would have, and and, and each of them very different. Um, and I, I don't. He, he doesn't say anything about the fact that these are all different. But um, if Job thought about it, he might realize, well, maybe God deals with me differently than He deals with other people too. Um, and he closes out chapter thirty-nine, talking about this hawk. And no, that's that's not the right place. Um, uh, I was thinking at the end of chapter 38 when he was talking about the lion cubs and the raven. And it's verse 41, who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food. Here God is claiming that He's the one who feeds the, the raven chicks. Wow. Um, now, and of course, this is something that scientists don't, don't believe. I mean, at least... I mean. Atheist scientists. I mean, I'm sure there's Christian scientists as well, but the atheist scientists will say, "I don't know. God doesn't have anything to do with it. You know, it's just it's just evolution, and you know they they've learned how to find their own food." But um, God says He's the one that does that. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, "A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from God. Everything that happens is is in God's hands." And so now, in chapter 40, verse 2, God concludes His first speech, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And what's Job's answer? Yes, he says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. So, he has come to an understanding, a better understanding of himself. When he sees God's greatness... He recognizes that he himself is insignificant. And, the, and so this was a very honest confession. He says, once I have spoken, I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. Oh. <clears throat> but God's not done, is He? <laughs> Does, has this ever surprised you that God would keep going after Job makes a confession? That God would continue to blast him, as we might say? <laughs> All right, second speech. And this one I've titled, Can You Handle Behemoth and Leviathan? And, and I'm pointing out here, Job's first confession did not go far enough. He confessed that he was insignificant, but apparently God still but apparently he still thought God was unjust. Now why do I say that? Why, I mean he didn't say that. Job didn't say, I'm insignificant. 
but you're still unjust. I mean, he didn't say that. But look in verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man, and get ready for another battle. I'll ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? God would not ask these questions of him if he knew that Job had repented of them. God's not going to bring something up once a person repents. The only reason he's asking is that Job still hasn't gotten far enough. He's gotten part of the way. He understands his own position with regard to God, but he does not understand something else. And so, God has to deal with with him some more. And in this case, he he picks... um, Basically, he says, do you think you can do God's job? And he's going to give some illustrations of it. Um, And and look in verse 11. This is very interesting. Um, If you're going to be like God, here's what you're going to have to do, Job. You're going to have to pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Um, Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that your own hand can save you. Now, when God asks, tells him what he's going to have to do, God is basically saying, that's what I do, Job. Now, do you notice that's exactly what Job didn't think he was doing in the early part of the book? And, and so God is basically saying, well, Job, do you think you could do it? <laughs> um, and if you can do those things, then I'll say, okay, yes, your own right hand can save you. And this is the big problem. It was necessary for Job, just like it's necessary for us to understand we cannot save ourselves. When we start judging God and saying, well, I don't think God did right over here, then we're basically saying, I think I can save myself. Now, again, this is not an issue that I think comes up with most people every day. It's one of these things that only happens when really, really bad things happen to us. And that's, I mean, Job would have never questioned God's justice prior to that major trial that he had. I mean, it was only when really bad things happen. And that's the time when I've seen people cross this line and start judging God. When things happen to them so bad, I mean, worse things than have happened to. In my life, I can look and I say, well, I, you know, I've never had that happen to me. That doesn't mean I'm saying, well, okay, that's alright for them to question God. But it's just an observation that these things tend to happen in the really big trials, the difficult times. God didn't use that as an excuse. God never mentions the excuse. He just deals with Job. Can you, can you rule the world like I do? Can you deal with the moral realm? Then in, uh, in, in verse 15, he starts dealing with these two great creatures. So there's two, one called the behemoth and one called the leviathan. Um, and the behemoth is the most powerful, most fearsome creature on land. And the leviathan is the most powerful, most fearsome creature in the water. Um, and the, the people have had different ideas on who, what these creatures are. I think... Most of the modern uh, commentators would say the behemoth was a, is a hippopotamus and Leviathan is a crocodile. Um, 
which both of those are very fierce, although I mean we don't usually think of a hippopotamus being fierce, but in South Africa where the where the hippopotamuses are, are negative there, um, uh, people get killed every so often by by hippopotami. Uh, they just uh, they'll have signs in the road, you know, warning hippopotamus crossing. Um, and, and they kill, get killed not from running into them by the car. I mean, they're just very fierce animals. Um, but there's some things in the description that just don't seem to that don't sound like a hippopotamus. Like um, verse seven, he bends his tail like a cedar. I mean, hippopotamuses don't have you know just huge tails. So um, Henry Morris, who's now dead, he's he was the founder of the Institute for Creation Research. He believes that both of these creatures are. Um, Dinosaurs that were uh, apparently still alive, either whether in Job's day or um, you know recent enough for the the people of Job's day to have a memory of it. Um, I don't know. It's something just keep it in mind. I I don't think it's an important issue for understanding the argument, but it's an interesting point. What the main point that God is trying to draw from these two creatures is that, Job, if you can't even handle a physical animal that I've created, you can't even handle this animal, how are you going to deal with the greater things? What he's trying to do is get Job to have some faith in God. God not only can handle the animal, God created the animal. Yeah, Tracy. We can't either. We can't handle the animal? No, we're in the same boat. Um, and we're not in the position of being able to judge God either. Um, and it's good. I mean, God has things in the creation that are far more powerful than we are. And it's good that we would know that so that we can have faith in God. Um, so the only rational thing Job could do was to trust God. God can rule the animal creation and He can rule the moral creation. So God was asking Job to trust Him without understanding God's ways. You notice God never explained why Job was suffering. I mean, the whole story ends... I mean, Job begins the story not knowing why it happened and it ends with him not knowing why it happened. Because that's the same situation we're in today. And we, we have to be walking by faith in God. Not, and, and this is a big problem. Because a lot of people, I mean, when, when things are going well, I mean, they think they've got this great relationship with God. Oh, wow, yeah, you know, me and God, you know, we're, we're on good terms. And, and then when things go bad, you discover that they, that they were not living by faith in God. They were living by faith in what they could see. They could see all these blessings. So hey, God's good. Now they don't see the blessings. They just see bad things. And they say, hey, God's bad. And, and, and they turn against Him. And, the, and it, it wasn't faith before and it's not faith now. Um, so this ends in chapter 42 with Job's answer. Um, and I... I comment here, as Job considered the wisdom that could create such great monsters, the light finally dawned on him, his own afflictions were also the result of that same wisdom. He doesn't understand the wisdom, but he understands wisdom is behind everything. And so his first confession showed that he had come to a right understanding of himself, 
In the second confession, he came to a right understanding of God. And when you put the two together, he was fully restored to God. It, is, it solved the problem. Oops. And then the story ends up with God giving him family back, riches back, all this, all the blessings. But let me mention one other thing. Just I don't know. We just I didn't know where to put it in about Leviathan. Leviathan is um, it's a word that means um, a wreathed or a twisted animal, and it suggests a serpent-like creature. And in the Bible, who what? What is the greatest serpent in the Bible? It's Satan. And and so and you have a theme throughout the Old Testament, even in the book of Revelation, you have a theme of this of this serpent who's this amazingly powerful creature which nobody can handle. Nobody except God. And and if if you when you read that Leviathan chapter, if you think of, as you read it about the fact that this is a, a, a um, kind of a poetic description of, of Satan, although I think it was also a description of a real animal, but it's poetically applied to Satan. It will help us to understand our position in, in, in God's realm. We're not powerful enough to handle Satan. Only God is powerful enough, and we, and we need to understand that um, we're only saved through the grace of God, and we're only saved from our sins day by day through the grace of God. Any last thoughts? Yeah, John. Uh, I'm thinking this book would be very hard to teach if we didn't have the prologue. And uh, you see at the end, Job, you don't. Job didn't have the prologue. <laughs> nevertheless, he, he accepted the the, uh, the lesson of the book. Uh, I think a, a lot of I don't know if everyone can hear John, but what John's saying is this book would be very hard for us to understand if we didn't have the first two chapters, the prologue. And that's exactly what Job didn't have. And and today when people suffer, they don't have those two chapters either. You know, I've told you many times before about the the parents who lost their eight year old son to a, a tumor on his brain. And they lost their faith in God as a result of that. They didn't have the two chapters to explain why. But that's the whole point. I mean, we, we're not showing faith in God if we only have faith when we know why. And that, and that was where Job was. Other thoughts? Anything else on the book of Job? Yeah. <laughs> Um, just, uh, just how God deals with um, his three friends here at the end. Oh, yes. The wrath was kindled and then uh, they had to do a sacrifice. So uh, I'm assuming that they repented because they did a sacrifice. Absolutely. Well, and yeah, we have to understand that their heart was in the right place. I, I think the whole time their heart was in the right place. They, What God says is they didn't speak truth about him. And, and I, I really think what he means deep down, it's deep underneath is they knew themselves they weren't speaking truth. Um, Job, they, they knew they couldn't answer Job, but they refused to budge because they had this philosophy that had to, had to go a certain way. 
And they thought they were honoring God with that, and they weren't. Job, although Job erred by charging God falsely, he never was dishonest. He, he spoke what he really believed the whole time, and, and a huge improvement over what the three friends were doing. But yeah, I, I'm sure they repented. And, and Do you notice something? You remember when the friends were telling Job, Job, you know, if you would just repent, you know, God would receive you? That's what happens to them. <laughs> They're the ones that end up having to repent and be received back by God. And, and uh, Job is one who has to pray. <laughs> Job is the mediator, mediator for them, yes. <laughs> Yeah. But Job didn't have to repent too. Absolutely. Yeah, he absolutely had to repent. Yes. Yeah, Matthew. Um, Brother Mott made the point that verse 10 says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah, he, he offered his sacrifice and prayed for them while still in the middle of his suffering. You know? I mean, it. He passed the test with flying colors. He really did. Um, and, at the, and so the test is now over. There's no reason for God to extend this test. Satan has abused Job long enough. Cancel all that and give him back everything that he lost. And what a wonderful uh, ending it, it comes to. Yeah, Tracy. I was wondering if... Yeah, I speak up for the people behind. I was wondering if even if... If you want to pray your concerns to God, it's on your mind to ask Him why, but even though you don't receive an answer, like, like pray your concerns. What's on your mind? Yeah, Tracy's asking, you know, can is it right for us to ask God why questions? You know, why is this happening or that? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, pay attention as we read in the Psalms, and I think you'll find people doing that very thing. Um, it, there is obviously a danger for us to start accusing God. We have to be careful about that. Um, but let me suggest that I think God would a whole lot rather have a person who's honest with God than someone who's not. Even if being honest means you go too far. Because you can be rescued. If you're an honest person, God can rescue you. But... And what I mean by this honest thing is, I, I, I think there are an awful lot of people that are not honest with God. They don't pray to God about what's really on their heart. They pray to God about what they think they're supposed to pray about. And so there's no, there's no relationship with God. I mean, God, God wants us to delight in Him, to love Him. We, we need to have a relationship. And when you have a relationship with someone, you talk to that person about what's on your mind. You don't just, I mean, think about it. If, if, you, if you have a person that, that you hang around with a lot and you only talk about the things that you think that person wants you to talk about, meanwhile, you've got really, really serious things that, that you're thinking about, but you would d never dare talk to that person about it. What kind of relationship is that? A very shallow relationship. Just very shallow. God wants a deep relationship. Um, and we need to take all of our concerns to Him. Now, I've, and one illustration I've used of this before, and I don't know whether people have understood me, but I remember when, when I was preaching down in Texas, there was some 
young lady who was a Christian, just a very weak Christian, unfortunately. Their TV broke. This is back in the days when TVs were really expensive um, compared. I mean, I understand they're expensive now if you want to get a 42-inch TV, but you know, if, if you just want something to put on this kitchen counter, you, you, most everyone can afford it. Their one TV broke. And she was just she was just beside herself. She was going crazy. What was she going to do? Of course, basically, she spent all her time watching TV, and so without a TV, what was she going to do? And, I, and I've thought about that, and I've wondered, what did she pray to God? I, I have no idea, but I, my guess, my guess is, she didn't mention it to God at all. Um, I think she'd be embarrassed to say, well, God, you know, could you get my TV fixed for me? I think she'd be embarrassed about that. And and I'm, I'm sure you're hearing me say this and you're saying, well, I would too. But wait a minute. If that's the thing that is most on your mind, how can you not talk to God about it? And, and the answer comes up, well, I'm not sure God would want me to be that concerned about a TV. Then there's something else you need to talk to God about. <laughs> Lord, help me to deal with this problem. I'm putting too much trust in this TV and not enough trust in You. Help me with that. And God can answer that. But you know why people don't pray that? Because they're afraid God might answer it. <laughs> There's got to be a relationship. Yeah, John. How did the three friends not speak falsehood and not trust in God? When... When Job pointed out to them that righteous people sometimes suffer and wicked people sometimes don't suffer, they refused to back down. They refused to admit that, that was true, even though it's obvious to anyone that, that observes. But to admit that would have been to admit that their whole philosophy was wrong and they weren't willing to do that. Yeah, an awful lot of people do believe just the contrary. They strongly still believe that God blesses those who are excellent or good and uh, brings you know, suffering on the suffering on the unjust. Well, and, and by and large, He does. On the righteous. Yeah. No, I mean, there's many times when God does. You've seen plenty of places, times when wicked people suffered because they were wicked. It's perfectly obvious. I mean, the AIDS epidemic that came on the world. I mean, 90% or more of the people that suffered from the AIDS epidemic were people that were sinning. And they were suffering, and they suffered it because they were sinning. It was an obvious case. But you can find cases where people have lived wicked lives their whole life and, and they, they, they get buried, and the newspaper presents this wonderful um, uh, story about how, you know, how great these people are. Their family goes on and you know uses all the money they've made illicitly. So there's exceptions, and but the friends were not willing to admit any of these exceptions because to admit those exceptions would be to deny their philosophy. So they were not being honest about God. In limited understanding or. Apparently, from the close of the book, it seems that it was a lack of understanding or a lack of trust. 
Well, I think when they began talking with Joe, they probably never thought the thing through very well. They had a certain philosophy. They felt like to be honest with God, you had to say, He always punishes wicked people. He always rewards righteous people. That was their philosophy. But after going through several rounds of debate with Job and realizing what they should have realized was Job hadn't done the things they, they accused him of. And secondly, that God doesn't always do it the way they think He ought to do it. For them to have admitted that would have been to say, I don't know either, Job. Then they weren't willing to, to go there. And, that, and this is a very common problem that people have today too. Where they've got things worked out in a certain box and... and, and it all work, and I'm talking about Bible-believing people. That you know, all works this way, and and when they they when someone else pre- pre- presents evidence that would show that you know there's a flaw in your box here, it doesn't all fit. They just close it off. They're not willing to listen to that because to accept even one flaw in their box, they'd have to rethink everything, and and that's just too much trouble. Yeah, there's no question about that. It's, it's awfully deep. <laughs> All right, well, I appreciate everyone's help on this book. We're not done with the class, though. We've got a whole other book to get started on. Thir- Thirteen psalms we're supposed to do here, so we better move along. <laughs> I don't think we're getting all 13 done. <laughs> um, what section of the Bible are we in? Poetry and Wisdom. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Solomon. So we're now in the second of the five uh, books of poetry and wisdom. The longest of the five. In fact, it's the longest book in the entire Bible. The book of Psalms. It's also the middle Bible part. If you take your Bible, fold it flat, and just open it smack in the middle, you're probably going to come to Psalm 119. (laughs) Right in the middle. So we're almost halfway through the Bible at this point as we start the book of Psalms. Now, the book of Psalms has a very simple outline. <laughs> book 1, book 2, book 3, book 4, book 5. <laughs> Turn to Psalm 41, and I want you to notice at the very end of the psalm, the very last sentence, three words, <clears throat> what's it say? Amen and amen. That is not part of Psalm 41, even though it, it looks like it is. That is the... Those words mark the end of book one. You notice in your Bible now it says book two. You understand that back when the book was written in Hebrew, they didn't mark they didn't mark Psalm one. They didn't have chapter markings or even book markings like this. Um, look at chapter seventy two and the last verse. Actually, look at the second last verse. See where it says, Amen and Amen? And then it says, The prayers of David the son of Jesse are ended. Both of those have nothing to do with Psalm 72. They are the, they are the end of book 2. Alright, now you're getting ahead of me, but go to chapter 89. <laughs> end of chapter 89. Amen and Amen. And you can go ahead and look at the end of chapter 106, but I hate to tell you this. They didn't keep it up. <laughs> they don't have amen and amen at the end of book four or at the end of book five. 
Now, um, I want to talk about what, why do we have five books of, of Psalms here? Um, Psalms are, this is a very different um, type of book from, from any of the others we've had thus far. Um, the Psalms is actually the Hebrew song book. Just like, you know, we have a song book. Um, the Psalms was their song book. And book one was their original song book. We don't know when these books were put together, but it's very obvious that, that one was done for a while before the next one was done, before the next and and they keep getting later and later until the last one was almost certainly done after they got back from captivity. It's it's it, during the time of the return. Whereas the first one, um, it could have been as early as the time of David. I'm not I'm not certain. I don't know just how how big a gap you can have, but it, it's hundreds of years earlier than that. And so that in later years, people. people some editor, songbook editor, decided, you know, we've got some more songs. We need to, we need to put these these additional songs in our songbook. And so they, and instead of buying a whole new one like like what we did, they added to the one that was already there. They they marked Amen and Amen, so you could saw where the previous one stopped, and then started in with the next one. Um, in some cases, they they found some older psalms again, that you know maybe somebody by uh, David that they could bring in. But for the most part, the, as they would add them, they would be newer ones. Now, what happens when as you move through time, hundreds of years, the, the theme of the songs that people sing about changes. This is true with our English songs as well. Uh, my son Daniel taught a class in his congregation about the history of songs. And he started back in the 1700s. Um, when you had people like Isaac Watt uh, um, and um, Charles, um, what was his last name? The Methodist Wesley, yeah, Charles Wesley, who wrote thousands of songs. Um, back then, the theme of the songs was um, very heavily theological, very, very, very much doctrinal. And and so when when you when you read songs that are from that era, that they're they're um, um, they they look at the theme of salvation, the the, the gospel, and, and um, the, the big the big topics of the Bible. A hundred years later, in the 1800s, this is the time of um, Fanny Crosby, who who wrote a lot of our books. The theme at that time was personal relationship with Jesus, and so her thought, her songs are much more personal songs that uh, about her relationship with God and re- relationship with her Lord. And then you go into the 20th century, and again you have some more things. I, I don't know them all, but I know that uh, during the Depression, you know, the, there was certainly some some songs about um, suffering. Um, there's there's one song in our book. That, that has the phrase um, "hardly a comfort can afford," um, which, frankly, it really bothers me to have us sing that today because <laughs> there's not a one of us here that, that can honestly say that we can hardly afford a comfort. 
and in more recent years, it's become very popular to have songs that are just a, a, a verse. There's a verse out of the Bible that, that they, they put to music. Um, now, in the same way, the Psalms have a progression. And um, I got this from, from my son Daniel, who got it from uh, a preacher that he knew. My guess is it originally comes from a book, but Daniel didn't know what book it comes from, so I don't have any way of getting credit to it. But here's the suggestion. The Psalms tells the story of kingship. And the first book celebrates Israel's king as God's agent. You may have noticed Psalm 2 is a psalm that is quoted a lot to do with Jesus. But I think originally it was a song about a king back then. I don't know which king it was. It might have been David, but I don't know. Uh, but the king was God's agent. That was very important. He represents God to the people. And of course, David obviously did represent God to the people. And, and many of these songs are written by David, the early ones. Then, book two continues with more songs by David. I don't really have a separate topic uh, for what's the difference in, in book two. But at the end, it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And now we move on to a new era in the life of the people. And so by the time we get to book three, it appears that in, in many of the Psalms, the monarchy is ended. They're in the captivity. Well now, if the king was God's agent, does the end of the monarchy mean the end of God's covenant with the nation? And so in, in book three, you have a lot of Psalms that are questioning. They're trying to feel out their relationship with God. God, you know, why have you done this to us? You know, do you still love us anymore? That kind of stuff. Then, in book 4, they explore this suffering even more and they look at what God teaches in the midst of judgment. This is a, a step forward from where they were in book 3. And then finally in book 5, and this is after the return from captivity, they decide that God is Israel's true king. And so the, the book has... Now, obviously, not every, every psalm does not follow this. I mean... But you can, you can see kind of a majority of the Psalms in, in the different books are going to go like this. And so you see this progression through the centuries. But this book is unique in all the Bible in that the theme of the book was not designed by the editor of the book. The theme of the book was designed by God. Now, I understand that God inspired all the authors. But I, I can guarantee you when Moses sat down to write the book of Genesis... He had a theme in mind. He knew exactly where he was going. It was, and in fact, you remember how many chapters in the book of, of Genesis according to Moses? Ten. Ten is the right answer. How does he mark the beginning of each of his chapters? These are the genealogies of. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure that that Moses picked the number ten for a reason. I don't think you know he he just accidentally got to that number. He had. He very carefully arranged the book. Now again, God was guiding him, but God guides people according to the, the gifts God gives them as well. And Moses had the gift to do this, and God guided him so that the book ended up exactly what he wanted. But the book of Psalms is very different. The book of Psalms was written by countless numbers of people over hundreds of years. And, they were, and it was put together by at least five different editors, because each book would have been done at a different stage in the people's history. God was the one that guided it to have this connected theme about the, the story of kingship. 
and ultimately ending up with the fact that God is is the king. Yeah, Tracy. I, I was wondering what they're called acrostic psalms. Yeah, we had one in, in this morning's lesson, which we're obviously not going to get to. Uh, actually, not both nine and ten were are both acrostic psalms. They they start the first letter of each line with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Yeah, maybe I'll be able. Maybe I can put up a slide in the future to show you what those letters look like. Although they didn't look the same back then, they've changed over the years because this was thousands of years ago. Yeah, John. It's interesting that they end up God is used to be considered the king of Israel, and Samuel, when the people asked for a king, their situation was at that time God was Yes, God was their king in the days of the judges, and they rejected him for Saul. Yeah, Samuel wasn't very happy about that. <laughs> Nor was God. Yeah, Ralph. I'm just wondering about the uh, oldest uh, manuscript with complete Well, um, prior, prior to about 1940, prior to 1940 in round numbers, the oldest manuscript of anything in the Bible of the Old Testament was about was in the 900s A.D. 900s A.D. That was the oldest we had for anything from the Old Testament. Now, in the 1940s, they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls have at least fragments of almost every book in the Old Testament, certainly the Psalms. I don't know, I don't think that, I don't, I don't think there's a complete book of Psalms in the Dead Sea Scrolls because I mean, these are 2,000-year-old manuscripts, more, more than that. The, the manuscripts of the Dead Sea Scrolls date back to 100 to 200 BC. Um, we have they have the whole book of Isaiah going back that far. The Isaiah manuscript was one of the best in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the others are just fragmentary. Some of them there's enough that that actually translators will sometimes use them to correct what what they have from the from the 10th century AD. But that's not all that we have. We we also have a translation into Greek, which is the Septuagint. Which was done two or three hundred years BC. Um, we don't have any manuscript of the Septuagint going that back that far, but you see there was a branching at that point where the Hebrew went one way and the Greek went the other way. And so, you know, you may be down several hundred years for the Greek, but it helps point you back, and the Hebrew points you back, so you can get some ideas on whether you know is the Greek translating what I think the Hebrew says. And there's a few cases where that's been helpful. Unfortunately, um, the Septuagint has... Um, sometimes the, the writers of the Septuagint didn't really understand what they were translating. Um, the article in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia on the Book of Psalms says that these headings... You may notice a lot of the Psalms have headings in, in small caps or some small case. Um, for example... Um, the heading for Psalm, there's no heading for Psalm one or two, but for Psalm three it says a psalm of, of David when he fled from Absalom his son. And the ISBE says that in some cases these headings were already so old, the language is so old that the that the Greek translators did not know what the words meant, and we still don't know what they mean today. Um, there, some of these 
that they are um, uh, musical terms that are in these headings. And, and so that we know that by two or 300 BC, the Psalms were already quite old uh, when it was translated into Greek. So I don't know if that answers your question. We're going to have to stop. I've gone over time. Um, so we'll start with Psalm 1 next time. Appreciate everyone's help.